You're listening to the Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts, Howard Schweitzer and Mark Alderman. Well, Howard, Jim, good to see you again in your uh, home studios and greetings to all of our listeners. Hope everybody is healthy and safe out there. And another unprecedented week since we last talked, so much has happened. But let's focus at least first here on the so-called stimulus, which is more of an economic relief package than an actual stimulus, I think. But Howard, tell us at a high level what this is and what it's supposed to do. So it's supposed to provide funding to businesses to keep people working. I mean, it is, it's a, it's a relief measure. Like you said, Mark, there are, there are many components to it. There's first and foremost, a small business component. There is um, funding in here for small businesses with many fewer strings attached than the funding with bigger businesses. There are a ton of provisions involving uh, money and authority in the health in the healthcare world. And right. then there is um, relief for distressed industries, including at the mid-sized business level. But um, it's really the the big businesses in distressed industries like the airline industry, there's relief but that's where there are major strings attached for political reasons. Right. So before we break it down, Jim, into some of those sectors, you worked in the administration with the men and women who are now charged, well, will be charged once this passes the House and the president signs it, who will be charged with standing up the various programs and and getting the money out the door. What can we expect what can we expect in terms of time and and intensity look i think treasury's been on the at the tip of the spear at this from day 1 so they're ready to go sba from what i understand again tip of the spear on this and are ready to go and you know the, the i think the important thing here will be getting this money the much needed money out to the states so that they can distribute the funds as well and so getting this money out to the and these funds out to the appropriate folks is going to be the biggest challenge and you know and accounting for all of it right there are like howard said there are some strings attached to it howard i'd love to hear your take from your time uh running the tarp program as to you know what are the what are the people at treasury thinking today what's on their minds how are they getting ready for this thing so they're forming teams they're probably already in teams um there and and the bill isn't done it's not law yet but it's going to be within 24 hours it's it's now thursday at four o'clock um they know it's coming and they have very short time frames in which to tell the world how to apply to get the money at least for the distressed industries like like airlines uh so they've also got to get literally millions, hundreds of millions of checks 
out the door to individual Americans. So they're they're separated into teams. They're in war rooms. They are um, setting an objective. They'll be putting out guidance for the public sector. And then they scatter and and they they come up with the rules. They make them up as 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 they're going. And and that's how it works. The fortunately or unfortunately, depending on the way you look at it, they are able to dust off a lot of what we did in 08, 09. Um, the playbook is more written now than it was then for the financial side of this, for the for the injection of capital into into the airlines and businesses like that. Not so much on the small business side, but I think on the bigger business side, there are some things they can dust off the shelf and and use. But Jim, I mean, it's like, I remember I got to Treasury and Paulson had just made the big banks take, take the TARP money. Some of them needed it. Some of them pretended they didn't need it and were being forced to take it. But they, you know, the nine banks took the money and I get to treasury and it's my first day. And I go into the conference room with, with Hank and we're all around this enormous conference table, portrait of George Washington on one side, portrait of Abraham Lincoln on the other side. And Hank told us what to do, told us not to F it up. And we left and got it done. Like you just move mountains and get stuff done. Hey, Mark. So you were you founded Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies kind of, uh, you know, at the time of, you know, when we were in crisis the last time. And, right. you know, I think it would be interesting to hear your perspective. We've heard what Howard went through on the front end when he was inside the government. Let's hear a little bit about, you know, recreating what you did last time. You know, we had to go through one of these financial crises in this country. And, you know, what steps, you know, what are you doing with clients today to get them ready for, for this next wave? Good. Sure. And it's similar, but of course, different. The public health dimension of this makes everything different than the financial crisis. The financial crisis was a financial crisis. The financial crisis this time has been caused by the public health crisis, but focusing on the CARES Act, as the stimulus is called. Uh, the analogous legislation, Jim, last time was the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, actually not TARP. As Howard uh, just described, TARP was set up to infuse money into the financial system. The American Reinvestment Recovery Act was set up to re-stimulate the economy. And we launched Cousin O'Connor Public Strategies just before that stimulus came out. And our first activity, our first clients, our first engagements were all around helping clients navigate the hundreds of billions of dollars in that case, trillions in this case, that were suddenly available. It was everything from the strategy of where benefits might be found to the mechanics, the blocking and tackling of making applications and then trying to work the application through the bureaucracy. So we, we are set up today to do the same 
you and I have been on a couple of calls about that. Uh, you and I have some work to do on that, Jim. And Howard and I have been on innumerable calls about that. Uh, we have been setting ourselves up to help clients get a hold of this money now that it's becoming available. I think another a key place, you know, we alluded to earlier was the state capitals, right? So a lot, $150 billion for state and local governments, $8 billion set aside for local governments. So a big chunk of this is going to go to the states. And how, let's talk a little bit about the interplay between, you know, what we're doing for clients at the federal level, but also what we need to do at the state level, you know, to, to, to do the, you know, to, to effectuate much of the same where we're, where we're going and trying to secure this grant money at the state level as well. So. There are different aspects of this, kind of flip sides of the same coin. The first of all, there are state rescue programs for businesses. And so there's the the side of the coin that relates to how you uh, borrow at the lowest cost um, to keep people working and your business afloat. And I think any what any business has to do, what we're talking to our clients about, Jim, as, as you know, is we're talking to people about looking at the landscape and figuring out what, how your business is structured, how it matches up against the federal legislation and also state opportunity, and where to go seek the funding. Because... Every business is a little bit different and, and the devil's in the details and um, the nuances can be can be really important here as far as what makes the most sense for you from a financial from a financial point of view. The other side of the coin is there's a lot of money there going out that's going to create opportunity and there is opportunity for businesses to perform services on not just on behalf of government, but also on behalf of private recipients of government money, certainly in healthcare, Mark. Um, right. And and there's pursuing that opportunity. So I've had the same conversation. I've had both conversations with the same client in, in a single call. How right. do we get money so we can stay in business? And where is the opportunity so we can build business? So the, the healthcare sector, as you mentioned, Howard, is is particularly interesting. Uh, I think we are very involved in that through existing and, and new clients. And there are sort of two macro dimensions to the healthcare provisions. There are a thousand subparts, as you say, Howard, in the nuance. But the two macro dimensions are $100 billion for hospitals. That is money. That is money available to hospitals for supplies, for payroll, for the health care of the healthcare workforce. And that is going to be analogous to the money that is flowing through the other sectors, the the big industry, the small business piece, and that middle tranche, Howard, which we should come back to. But what is also in the healthcare section that is so interesting is there is a an amendment 
a relaxation of many of the Medicare and Medicaid rules to allow healthcare to flow more easily, to allow access through Medicaid and Medicare to patients more, more readily. Testing is a big part of that. But the, the dimension of it that is going to change healthcare forever, more than the $100 billion, is the telehealth provisions. A lot of us have been lobbying for a long time to get Medicare and Medicaid more invested in telehealth. And it's been steady progress, but we never really got to the mountaintop until now. Medicare and Medicaid, as well as commercial insurance, are now fully engaged in telehealth. And what is going to be fascinating is that when we come out of this, and we will, at some point, we are going to have taught the American people to visit their doctor on their phone or over their computer, as we're doing right now. And the implications of that for the healthcare system for years to come are, are going to be, I think, very positive and very profound. So this is about more than just money, at least in the healthcare sector. You know, back on what we were talking about earlier on TARP versus um, ARRA and how this matches up, I think the way to think about what we're going through now is is that the systemic risk in the it, the systemic risk that Congress is trying to address is that people can't go to work and people can't travel and people can't go out to eat and that creates just a lack of commerce and the lack of commerce is the systemic risk that Congress has to deal with this time there are a couple of particular industries where there are tarp-like bailouts going on, particularly airlines, and which have a you know, serve a hugely important purpose from a um, infrastructure point of view, um, uh, and and hotels, um, yeah, and food services. How food, right, right, and restaurants, right. Thank you. Um, but in in oh eight oh nine, the the risk was the systemic risk was twofold. It was financial system risk. There was systemic risk of a financial system failure. And there was in the autos systemic systemic risk that was um, dealt with out of TARP. The autos are more like the airlines and hotels and restaurants today than the banks were in, in 08, 09. So I just wanted to throw that out for, for some context. So thank you, Jim. Uh, you were mentioning before the states. You've been on the uh, administration end. You've been on the state end. Uh, it wouldn't be the Beltway briefing if we didn't at least ask the question about where politics will or won't fit here. You've seen the money flow from a Democratic administration to a Republican governor in an emergency. There are a number of governors who have big problems on their hands, big states, New York, California. And the president and his administration, uh, 
not always aligned with those governors and, and their administrations. Should we expect any any friction or is, is this going to just work? Look, I, I think the administration, in particular New York and California, have been communicating readily with the president, the vice president, their teams. I think you're going to see them getting what they need, regardless of the fact that these states lean left, right? Andrew Cuomo has done a great job of communicating with the public on this issue, but more importantly, a great job of communicating with this Republican administration and vice versa. And I think they've both kind of lauded one another for that for that effort. Um, but I think you're going to see, you know, I, I think, you know, the money's going to flow where it needs to flow because the industries are in such dire trouble. And talk a little bit about the SBA. There's $349 billion as part of that SBA lending program. And it's it's small businesses defined by under 500 employees, but in certain sectors, they're going up to almost 1,500 employees. I think that's going to be the key. The Treasury Department and SBA have to get in gear. And I know the bill calls for Treasury to have guidelines you know, within 10 days, I think you're going to see guidance probably sooner than that. But, you know, I, you know, this, this, you know, you have folks in the service industry, the health, the, the restaurant and the, and the, and the hotel industry that are just hurting, they're losing people and they have to be able to keep them. And SBA, you know, this SBA funding is going to be their way of kind of sustaining this and keeping people from, just falling apart economically. So where are those places located? In places like Philadelphia, in places like New York City. You know, it's going to hit, you know, it's going to hit the smaller towns too, but the largest concentration of people are in these major metropolitan areas. And we've been looking hard Howard at the uh, SBA provisions and already talking with clients about what comes after the president signs this tomorrow. Talk with us a little bit about timing, about process. What what can the small business community in this country expect from that $349 billion pool? Well, a lot of the lending will be done through delegated authority to commercial banks. So people will go to their own banking institutions to borrow the SBA, the SBA funding. Um, and and so you know clearly if the government had to process all of that, we we'd never get through it. Um, I think what I'm telling clients is it's not even law yet. So um, business decisions you have to make in the next several days because they're what your financial system calls for. You need to go ahead and make them. There's no there's no bill yet. Um, right. We we have told more than one client in the last twenty four hours. We we look forward to talking to them after we've actually read it. Right. The um, you know, I'm telling clients weeks, not months, but definitely not days. And and you know, that's I think the way to that's the way to think about this from a time frame. Which, by the way, is if I'm right, spectacularly fast. Spectacularly fast. And the checks to Americans, which are means tested, have to go out also very, very quickly. And and that's going to happen amazingly quickly. I by the way, I think there are going to be some enormous logistical hurdles there. But it's gonna happen 
It's supposed to happen very, very quickly. I'm not sure that in terms of the more, uh, the programs that have to be designed and developed that the government is as far along in their preparation as, as maybe they need to be, but you know, we'll see. But I think for, well, for small business weeks, not days. And, and the mandate from the top down is speed, speed matters here. Speed saves lives uh, here. And the ripple effect of that small business uh, money is is dramatic. Obviously, a small business needs to to have money for payroll. The payroll goes to employees who then go out and buy food and pay their rent. The small business pays its rent, and that enables the landlord to pay its employees. So this is not money that is going to stick with the small business. This is going to jumpstart uh, a lot of opportunities up and down the uh, the business chain. And I think that's why that is the, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that is the largest single fund or the industry fund, I guess, is even bigger, right? Yeah. Okay. Hey, Howard. Howard, you know, switching on to some of the, we talked a little bit about the strings earlier. Yeah. And I want to walk through some of these and get your sense on them and whether these are lessons learned from the past. You know, in particular, the transparency provision it requires the Treasury Department and Federal Reserve to publish for the public every seven days which companies and ent entities get financing through the Treasury's lending mm -hmm. um, lending programs and bailout programs that, you know, borrowers have to, um, you know, the businesses that take money have to wait at least a year to do st stock buybacks or pay dividends to shareholders. And then this whole idea of limiting um, executives of big companies facing restrictions on comp and bonuses. Could you talk a little bit about that and whether the whether these are lessons learned and, and what your thoughts are? on? Well, I think there are lessons on the oversight and transparency. There are lessons learned. Um, these are positive lessons from 0809 yeah. because it, they basically did a similar structure here that they did there that they did then. And it and it worked. I mean, I had as many people on my team responding to oversight requests as I did executing the programs themselves. And at the time I was, you know, not happy about it because it was an enormous burden. And I was spending, you know, once a month, all day, you know, all weekend, in a locked in a conference room with congressional investigators answering questions about what we were doing. And it was an enormous pain at a time where we were trying to save the financial system. But I came to realize that it's what gave the program legitimacy to the extent that, I mean, obviously it's, it's a hated program, but it, it, it gave us defensibility. It enabled us to say, we're telling the world what we're doing. And not only and there no secrets. And so I think it's enormously beneficial to the program. You're talking about two trillion dollars. You damn well better have some oversight. And and so I think that's super positive. In terms of the strings that go al go along with the um the funding, like limitations on executive compensation and the issuance of warrants. So executive comp is definitely 
a lesson learned from 08, 09. Um, you know, that stuff came into the program, but we got a lot of heat for um, the amount of money that the companies we were bailing out were still paying their executives. So a lot of that um, bled over into this. And, and you know, on, on war things like warrants, I, I think that, you know, when we did what we did in 08, 09, the taxpayer came out not just whole, but ahead. And the taxpayer had upside and had a stake in the recovery of these companies and got the benefit of the recovery of these companies. And I think as a result of that, they're going to do it again because, look, we know this economy is coming back when we get through this damn virus. And when it does, why shouldn't the taxpayer benefit from having lent hundreds of billions of dollars to the private sector? Well, the economy is coming back, but not for a little while. One thing that has at least for three days powered come back is the markets. And we have talked before on, on these podcasts about the markets being a forward-looking leading indicator. What do you, what is happening in the last couple of days? I'm holding up my iPhone because for our loyal listeners, Jim and Mark and I can see each other on these podcasts. Here's the, here's the headline of the Wall Street Journal as we speak. Dow enters new bull market with a 6% rally. I, I mean, has there ever been a dumber headline written? We're not in a bull market. <laughs> I, I doubt it. I doubt it. These wild swings are are out of control. I mean, but but we're certainly not in a bull market. That's insane. I mean, the, the market is a reflection of expectations about how much money companies are going to make. And with $2 trillion going out into the system, people feel better about economic prospects as far as corporate profits go than they did a week ago, which they should. But it's obviously, look, these volatile swings, these these 10%, 6% swing, I mean, they're horrible. And I went through this 10 years ago, 12 years ago. It was, right. you know, the, the spikes are almost worse than the decline themselves. Well, and we still have the pandemic to deal with. And the markets have overreacted in my view to some pandemic news. They're now overreacted down. They're now overreacting up in on the stimulus news. Uh, I agree with you that that is not the, the headline I would be writing uh, today. Jim, I have a question for you. Why does, why does Trump keep putting himself well, I know the answer to the question, but it's I withdraw the question. But for a while, he was letting Pence really run point publicly. Now, every night he's going on television. Is it just that he can't help himself or like, why is why? Why? Because it's not good for him politically or otherwise. Well, Howard, the numbers show otherwise, though. In the polling that I've seen, he was upside down right around the time he held that single Oval Office, uh, you know, briefing where he was sitting at the at his desk and at the Resolute desk in the Oval Office. Oh, you office. mean the one where the market went down two thousand points? 
<laughs> since that time, <laughs> since that time. Well, and I'll get to the mayor of New York in a second, oh. and him saying the half of New York well, is going to be infected with yeah, you coronavirus. No argument but, here, Jim. But but no but the, but but in terms of the numbers, Howard, now you've seen approval ratings as high as fifty five percent on on how he's handling this, how the administration's handling this, and largely, look, the president needs. He, they owned it from the beginning, and you disagreed that they and said that they shouldn't have owned it. But now they own it, and he's the president of the United States, and he needs – I think it's smart for him to have Pence with him. It's smart for him to have as many people behind him as possible, and I said that from day one. He should never hold a press conference by himself on this topic ever again, and so far so good since that Oval Office address that evening. Um, you know, From a policy perspective, though, I wanted to shift, Howard, for a second to higher ed, Mark. You know, We sit in the oh, middle of the – I want to talk end. about Trump more. Yeah, uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. But, but, but I want I want Mark. To, Mark talked about the 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 healthcare piece of this. We sit in the epicenter of Eds and Meds here in Philadelphia, and and you know there is fourteen you know billion dollars or so in this thing for higher ed. Mark, what do you what is your advice, given your experience in in handling these things? And the last time around, what's your advice for the higher education institutions? Besides hire us, of course. Well, that it, that was my advice. We're taking a look at that, <laughs> and we're going to be reaching out to our relationships in the higher ed community here and elsewhere. And I think, Jim, it's the same playbook as in healthcare, as with the small businesses, as with the airlines. You got to see what it says. You got to find opportunity in the provisions, and then you have to go get it. It is the execution here that is going to make the difference between success and, and something less. And we look forward to talking with our clients about how to go find that money. But it, it is interesting that, that you underscore that because we are in a world where $14 billion doesn't get any attention in the coverage of the stimulus. But, but we're aware of it. And and, and, I, and I think the other piece of it. it, it looks like they're going to have a lot of flexibility in terms of how they can use the money from at least the initial read that I've seen coming out of this, I think, which is good for higher ed. Yep. I think politically, you know, we you talk about it only being $14 billion. Higher ed takes a big hit these days for increasing college tuitions and yep. all the things involved in that. And I think that's largely why you're looking at a $15 billion, $14 billion number and not a larger number. Right, right. And it, it is almost lost in the $2 trillion, but it is, a, it is a lot of money and it is something that we're certainly looking at. And and Jim, we're going to get back to Trump in the, the, right, in the final minutes, but I want, want, I want to ask about <laughs> one other piece, because this is something that, that you and Howard, but you, you much more so, did in government, and it is a, a very big moving part here, and that's procurement. Talk to us a little bit about about what is happening in the world of government purchasing as they go looking for supplies. So there is an ever-moving target here, both at the federal level and the state level in terms of procurement, because you know for all the things that we need as Americans to defend ourselves and to wage war on this virus, you know, there are a number of, you know, the government gets in the way of all of that. And what we're seeing states doing, and certainly at the federal level, we're seeing the federal government 
cutting the red tape so we can get more tests. We heard a lot on TV today about these 15, uh, these tests that get, have 15 minute results on them and in trying to get them into this country like they had in Italy and the UK. Um, that's something that needs to happen and happen fast. And I think, you know, and you're seeing a repurposing of, of companies, uh, of manufacturing plants around the country to, you know, manufacture items that, and, and, and other things that, that combat this virus. So I think that's something that the repurposing piece and getting, opening up the, the flow and stream of commerce, you know, is very, very important for governments. They're recognizing it. And it's something that businesses should be taking a look at and looking at very closely and working with folks that understand the procurement process. And as these shackles are unlocked, really taking advantage of it to the benefit of the public. We've seen in New Jersey where, you know, the, the governor of New Jersey has been um, asking for folks that have these these items to, you know, keep them in state and that the state wants to purchase them and purchase them quickly. And, you know, we can help facilitate that um, as 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 a law firm and as a consulting firm. Good. Let, let me come back in the final two minutes here to the president, Jim. And now let's and talk Howard. about the mayor. Talk about the mayor and the president. The mayor of New York. Half of the of the citizens of New York are going to be infected by this virus, according to the according to the well, mayor. The, Could be one of the most irresponsible things I've heard yet. Now, you know, and and seems to be you know uh, creating trying. It's going to have the result of creating more chaos and impact on the market. He's the no most accidental mayor. He's the most accidental mayor of New York I've ever seen. He's just he's he is he's just bad. He's just bad at his job. I don't know how he won in the first place. He's not worthy of beltway briefing time, in my opinion. He he I want to move back to the president. <laughs> I bet you do. Of course you do. I bet you do. It is Thursday, March 26th. In 17 days, it will be Easter. Where where are we going to be in 17 days at the federal level with the guidelines that call for the social distancing and and the shutdown? Recognizing, and we should make sure our listeners uh, appreciate this, I'm sure they do, the president has issued recommendations. It is not an order. Governors, even mayors like Howard's favorite mayor, Bill de Blasio, have their own authority. So it it could get a little disconnected if the president is going one way and governors uh, are going the other way. What what do we think? How does that play out? Look, you know, the president, look, look, he has the largest bully pulpit on this issue right now, maybe rivaled by Andrew Cuomo because of the, the media access and just the nature of the of the problem they have in New York. And I, I think that, you know, the president leading on this and and having to, you know, drive this whole issue of social distancing, I, I'm one that that's a state's rights issue at the end of the day. The governors certainly have the power to do what they need to do. And uh, most of them are doing the right thing in that regard. There is some inconsistency across the board from state to state, but that's what we have you know, in just about everything we deal with in government is some inconsistency. You know, you have inconsistency in counties in in the in the state of California. 
But in New York, you have, you know, Andrew Cuomo was taking a very authoritarian position on it and said, look, we're going to do what I say, not what the municipalities say. I don't think that's the place of the of the president yet. But I do think that he can drive the narrative on it in terms of social distancing and what and the, what the recommendations are. And I think that's what he needs to continue to can do. Can we just call a spade a spade? You know, Jim, that this is that that the following happened. The president said to somebody, I'm going to go out and tell them that we're going to be done by Easter. And all his advisors were, Mr. President, there's no way we're going to be done by Easter. Well, I'm going to go tell them that. Or he didn't even have that conversation. And he just went and boarded it it out because it's because guess what? Now everybody's talking about Trump and his proclamation that will be done by he just wants to be. He just wants Look, to he, be. He's. I think he's instilling controversial. He's instilling. I, I think he's instilling some hopeful nature as it relates to this thing. I mean, but I do think you're going to see as the social distancing measures increase, as people follow those, and you see governors clamping down more, and some municipalities clamping down more, and quite frankly, people following the rules more. Right? You're not seeing as many people out and about, even in the even in the public domain and parks and other places. I wouldn't know. I haven't been outside. Social (laughs) distancing. But, you know, I live here in the city and, you know, you you have, you know, you you walk by the parks occasionally. We can go out and take a walk here in the city of Philadelphia. And you're not seeing kids on the basketball courts anymore, right, like you used to. So I think people are following the rules, if you will, uh, to the extent possible. And I think that's a good thing. You have stores that are opening up early for seniors. So you're not so you're not jeopardizing the seniors as much or letting people in, you know, 50 people in the store at a time and letting people in one by one. As that starts to work, as we see more testing, as more as we see more you know, advancements come forward in terms of treating this thing, we could have a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, whether it's going to be over by Easter, you know, I, well, I think we, we can all, all agree it's not going to be over by Easter. We all, but I think you you can see in a couple of weeks a light at the end of the tunnel as a result of the things that our government has been implementing across the board. Let, let's leave it on that hopeful note. Nothing would make us on this podcast and all of our listeners happier then for this to be over sooner rather than later, even though we all know that Easter is is not going to be the end. But we will be back in a week, uh, and it will have been, I am sure, another week of unprecedented events. And we look forward to talking to our listeners again then. In the meantime, everybody, please stay healthy, stay safe, and, and stay in touch. Jim Howard, thank you. Thanks, guys. Great. A lot of fun. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Beltway Briefing. If you liked our show, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. And while you're at it, drop us a rating. To learn more about the Beltway Briefing or Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, please visit our website at copublicstrategies.com.